welcome to the other side of midnight. Tonight's show is titled 9-11 Legal Victories and New Directions and the Afghanistan Debacle. Well, last night, lightning struck extremely close to Richard's desert home, taking out the power. And although the power was restored, it did some, we hope, temporary damage to the electrical uh, wiring for his studio. After a day of troubleshooting and crawling around looking for wires, the problem is still not resolved. I know how much Richard really wanted to host this show, and he's very disappointed. That said, it is an important show, and we are not about to postpone this one. So... I will do my best to fill in for him in the captain's chair. This is Kinthea, and I welcome you to the other side of midnight. Tonight, you will get two for one. In our first segment, we're going to cover the recent legal victories and new directions of the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry. And in the last hour, we're going to cover the pipeline as it pertains to the Afghanistan debacle. For our panel tonight, I am delighted to welcome back our esteemed return guests. Mick Harrison, Barbara Honiger, Richard Gage, along with Charlotte Dennett, all from the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry. You can find the Lawyers Committee for Inquiry website at lc. 911.org that's lc for lawyers committee the word for f o r 911.org lc for 911.org there you will find links to the 911 symposium that was held today as well as how you can help bring justice by supporting the production of their new historic world trade center evidence document series 9-11 Crime Scene to Courtroom. On our panel tonight, we have our returning guests. Attorney Mick Harrison, a co-founder of the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry. The genius legal mind spearheading this organization. A member of the board and the executive director. Barbara Honiger, co-chairman of the board and investigative researcher, author, documentarian, public speaker, and major activist on the events of 9-11. We also have architect Richard Gage, a member of the American Institute of Architects, now serving on the board of directors of the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, Richard's site is richardgage911.org. There you'll find some amazing posts with information you may not have seen. Corollaries of the 9-11 attack to the anthrax and COVID attacks. And joining us tonight for the first time, we have attorney Charlotte Dennett, also a board member of the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry and an acclaimed investigative journalist identified by Time Magazine as an expert in resources-based politics. Welcome to the other side of midnight, all. I'm so delighted you're joining us. Thank you, Thank so, you so much, Cynthia. Yes, yes, it's a delight. We've had you on the show many times, and I'm really excited to hear what's the latest news. And Mick, if you'd like to come forward and start this off, I'd uh, really enjoy it. Thank you, Kintia. We wanted to give an update to your listeners, and we did that to some of our supporters earlier today on where the legal battles stand and some of the non-legal investigative and advocacy efforts on our mission, which, as you know, is accountability and transparency regarding the crimes of 9-11. So we've had some accomplishments, which are, I don't want to overstate them, we're still in the middle of the war, but we've had some battles that we've made progress in that are significant, we'll describe those. 
and we have some battles we're still in the thick of, and we'll talk about those. And then we have some major decisions to make on paths forward on others, and we're actually looking for feedback from the concerned public on our new direction. So if any of your listeners decide they want to weigh in, they can email us at our website and let us know their thoughts, which would be appreciated. So the short version on the legal front is probably the most uh, significant progress that we've made in a legal battle is in a lawsuit against two federal agencies, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, and the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST. These are the two agencies that are uh, responsible for the, the studies done by the federal government regarding the collapse of the World Trade Center buildings during the 9-11 attacks. And this particular lawsuit is under the Federal Freedom of Information Act. The plaintiff is David Cole, who was the Lawyers Committee FOIA director for a time and is still an independent researcher and investigator on 9-11, has been for many years. I'm representing David in this lawsuit with the support, including financial support of the Lawyers Committee. So the short version of this case, which could, I mean, it does have some promise of being one of those breakthroughs we've been looking for. The, the lawsuit uh, is based on FEMA's denial of Mr. Cole's request for records. What David asked for were all the records of the data used in the studies of the building collapses. And uh, strangely enough, FEMA's first answer to David was, we don't have any records responsive to your request, not even a single page of data records, even though they spent a million dollars on this study and published it on the web and it's several hundred pages. So that was a bit of a shocker. So um, David pressed and they said, well, the reason we don't have any records to give you is we gave all of our records to the other federal agency that's studying the building collapse, NIST, and NIST has all of our records because we gave them everything we had. And, you know, you might at first glance take that as a possibly plausible explanation for not producing any records, but when you think about it, we're talking about 2001, 2002 time period, clearly in the computer age, it's virtually impossible for anyone, corporate or individual or government, to give up all of their records on anything. To do that, you would have to give up your copies, your originals, your backups, paper, electronic, emails, uh, just doesn't happen. So even that uh, second explanation by FEMA didn't really wash, but um, they did forward uh, David's request to NIST and asked NIST to produce to David the records that NIST had been given by FEMA and they did, both agencies decided, there were about 3,700 pages of records regarding the, the data used in the building performance study that could be released to David. Unfortunately, they did not release the records. And they stalled for three years after determining they could release those records. And so after a total of four years of being very patient, David asked me to bring the lawsuit for him, which I did. And shortly after we brought the lawsuit, the 3,700 or so pages of records miraculously appeared and were produced. Uh, so David did get those. Uh, the problem is, when he reviewed them, he realized that the really potentially incriminating evidence he was looking for, which has to do with some photographs and videos and some other records regarding uh, damage to the steel, um, the steel residue from the collapse of the Trade Center buildings, uh, we have reason to believe that those photographs and videos will show damage to the steel, and Richard can explain, I think, more of the technical aspects, but uh, damage that could only be caused by extremely high temperatures, and erosion, corrosion, and sulfidation that results from high temperatures, meaning temperatures much higher than jet fuel can create, much higher than building fires can create. So uh, those omissions were significant because that's really where the bodies are probably buried in terms of the cover-up. 
by the agencies of what really happened at the Trade Center on 9-11. So we, we pressed in our lawsuit and we filed a motion with the court to be allowed to do discovery. Uh, discovery, as you may know, involves doing depositions under oath in front of a court reporter of the opposing party's witnesses, uh, doing written questions that must be answered under oath, which are interrogatories, and doing document requests, which are analogous to subpoenas. And uh, that type of discovery isn't normally allowed in FOIA cases, Freedom of Information Act cases, but the judge was concerned about the evidence we produced of what appeared to be concealment by the agencies of records we could prove existed, uh, and the agencies had not explained why they couldn't find them. So the court granted us discovery. Uh, we completed that discovery uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, that is sort of one of the breakthroughs that is likely the first 9-11 case brought by citizens where discovery has been allowed. Uh, there may have been some limited discovery in the case against the Saudis in New York for the family members, but um, this is the first in uh, any other type of case. And the discovery turned out to be very revealing. So instead of uh, FEMA having been correct in what they told David and what they told the court, which were basically three things. They first told David they'd done a comprehensive search for the records and couldn't find anything. Then they told the court that they'd given all their records to NIST and um, that, you know, NIST had pretty much everything that FEMA possessed. So the discovery showed that there had been no search at all by FEMA. They actually hadn't looked at a single email or a single computer or even a single piece of paper in their staff files. What they had done and relied on was the fact that one of their contractors turned over the contractor's records, Greenhorn and Omera, which left all of the agency's records intact and in their uh -huh. possession. Well, so it was yes, basically well. a lie, you know, a big lie. Um, but now they're, they're, you know, they're caught in that big lie. That's the you know, sort of the breakthrough in the case. And then um, in terms of giving their um, their records to NIST, uh, even though a chunk of records were transferred by the contractor, the contractor acknowledged that even they did not give their sole copies of all the records to NIST. They kept some emails and computer records, which could have been searched, but were not in response to this FOIA. And then we discovered through David's efforts, a document that has had never been disclosed to us, even in the discovery. And that was a later transfer of a large volume of video and photographic evidence, building performance study records by another contractor, uh, Gil Sands Murray Stefasek, which happened later than the Greenhorn transfer. And that transfer was never acknowledged in this lawsuit until we dug it up on our own and those records have not been produced. We then discovered in terms of the cover-up by NIST that even though they did purportedly do a search as distinguished from FEMA that did nothing, what NIST did was an intentionally uh, limited search, which doesn't really qualify as a search. What they did was is that an engineer at NIST directed the staff person doing the search to simply take an inventory, a two-page inventory of that transfer of records by Greenhorn, that one transfer, which happened in May 2002, take those two pages, that list of documents, go to the computer database that NIST maintains, which is pretty comprehensive, and they put all their you know trade center records in there on the computer, but the staffer was not allowed to search the database for all the building performance records. They were told just to go in find these individual records, and when you found the ones on this list, stop and look for nothing more. Well, and the, ma the major problem with that limitation is that we've now discovered there was a lot more there. So how does the courts view this? I mean, when it's so obvious that they are <laughs> avoiding, you know, they are misleading and misdirecting and, and that they are not cooperating, how does the court view this? All right, do you, Mick? Uh, Mick, unmute, please. No, oh, we lost him. I got it. Maybe uh, one of uh, the other guests can fill us in for a moment till we get him back. 
Yeah, he's gone. Uh, this oh. is Richard All Gage, right. architect. And um, I can tell you that working with Mick has been an incredible, uh, eye-opening uh, exercise. He has such a command of logic and and, and eloquence and, and diplomacy. Um, <clears throat> because I am, with Mick, going to be featured in a film that we are making together to bring to life the 60 exhibits of evidence for the World Trade Center's destruction to the grand jury. So awesome. Mick is going to be explaining to the grand jurors in this film, we're looking right into the camera, in, in, in the most comprehensive body of World Trade Center evidence ever assembled. Uh, he will be explaining to them their duties, their obligations, their opportunities to pursue uh, a real investigation, who they might call as material witnesses, uh, subpoena. Because they're an investigative body. And Mick explains very well uh, how the grand jurors work for everybody. Um, the 60 exhibits uh, have been uh, assembled into a package that uh, Mick and the team at Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry uh, submitted a couple of years ago now to the uh, special, to, to the U.S. attorney to be given to a special grand jury. And uh, Mick, uh, after you finish what you're talking about, you, you might, uh, now that you're back, you might... Um, you might touch on that grand jury petition because that has some exciting future, even though it's met some recent uh, tough challenges. Thank you, Richard. Uh, sorry about the cutoff oh, there. Welcome. welcome back. I was just so curious how the court handled realizing that the information had been withheld. Well, we're about to find that out. Um, the first, I mean, when the court first got I guess a good feel for that in our first summary judgment filing, the court at that point ordered the discovery, which we now have had the benefit of. So I think the court is, has been partially informed, but the court doesn't know yet the results of the discovery I'm sharing with you. Uh, mm. It's been filed now, but the court is probably not going to read it until the briefing is finished in another couple of months. And then we'll know the answer to your question. I'm as curious as you are okay. to know what the court's going to do with that. Okay. And just as a matter of point, you keep mentioning David. Can you please give us his full name? Yes. I, David Cole, C-O-L-E. And he is the plaintiff in this and a couple of our other Freedom of Information Act cases. Longtime 9-11 researcher. And my client. Wonderful. So um, while you were off air, Richard was extolling your virtues and telling us about the new documentary series that you're putting together to present to the court. I think that's such a brilliant strategy. Well, it's an exciting um, project, and I'm sorry I interrupted that because I always like to hear Richard extol my virtues. So... Um, <laughs> The, I mean, that project is really going to lay out for the public, and we hope for a real, the public in the role of a grand jury, but also we hope for a real grand jury. We're working on that. The evidence in that petition of, and, and that evidence is like, I don't know how many different independent strands of scientific evidence, several of which are independently sufficient are just dispositive because there's no other way to explain that evidence. The high temperature evidence is one category like that. You know, you might consider the evidence of 100 first responders, firefighters and police and so forth who say we saw and heard explosions. You might consider that circumstantial, but, you know, the, the odds of that many professional observers being wrong are pretty small. But when you get into the scientific evidence, and you look at that, those extreme temperatures, where it, which jet fuel simply cannot create, building contents cannot create, but high-tech incendiaries and explosives can, like nanothermite, nanothermate, 
you have uh, really, as uh, the old saying goes from the Sherlock Holmes stories, eliminated the impossible. So whatever remains in this case, the use of explosives and incendiaries, even though improbable, must be the truth. And that's our petition lays out a very dispositive scientific case for demolition. And and Richard and I are going to try in this film project, Crime Scene to Courtroom, to to make user friendly for lay people that scientific evidence so the so public Christian, can really get a feel. Yeah. Is, so is the public going to be seeing this before the jury does or the jury sees it and yeah. then the public sees it? That's a pretty good question. So let me give you what's a bit of a long answer to that. We, uh, our hope was that the real grand jury would see it first. And there is an outside chance that may have already happened, but the odds are that it has not happened. We, we filed the petition with all the evidence with the U.S. Attorney uh, for the Southern District of New York, who told us in a letter that <clears throat> he would honor his duty under the statute, which says, you know, citizen crimes, citizen reports of crimes must be shared with the grand jury. But it turns out, apparently, the district attorney, the U.S. attorney did not do that. Um, he decided to not share. That makes him complicit, doesn't it? Hmm. Well, it's I mean, it's hard to explain it in an innocent way. The statute is very clear about the duty. So we sued in, in the federal court in New York. And unfortunately, the court there decided not that we were wrong about the duty on the U.S. attorney to give the petition to the grand jury, but the court decided we did not have legal standing to bring the suit. So even though we might be right, we didn't have our right to complain. Mm, so Sounds like a corrupt court. Well, it's it's it was a, uh, the way lawyers would say that would be, it would be a an overly stingy application of the standing doctrine and well, probably well, we, in violation of... Uh, the First Amendment and the right of access to the courts. Um, if you want to know, you consider more all the lives that were lost. It's beyond being stingy. It's it does that doesn't that doesn't hold any kind of water. It's their duty to really investigate that. It's well, like them with withholding the documents. It's their duty to reveal the documents. I agree it just with makes that. another court complicit. Well, uh, the court isn't helping us get justice on this and get to the truth, so I will agree with you on that. Um, we did appeal to the next step, which is the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, the second highest court in the country. That um, panel recently decided our case, unfortunately, agreeing with the district court that we didn't have standing. And the reasoning is just wrong by both courts on that. Your intuition as a layperson, I think, is correct on the standing issue. Um, one aspect of this, which is makes it more of an egregious error by the courts, is that we had a First Amendment claim. We didn't just have a claim to enforce the federal statute that put the duty on the U.S. attorney. We have a First Amendment claim that's pretty simple, which is uh, my clients as citizens were petitioning a federal government entity, the grand jury, we also petitioned the U.S. attorney, but our petition was directed to the grand jury itself. And the U.S. attorney decided to obstruct delivery of our First Amendment petition for redress to the federal government entity to which it was addressed, the grand jury. And that's a violation of my client's First Amendment rights. And there's a whole body of federal case law over decades now, which basically says unambiguously when an agency or an official obstructs the exercise of a constitutional right or even chills that exercise, that a citizen has legal standing to go to a court and seek a legal remedy to stop the violation. And I, you know, I was surprised as a bit of an understatement to see the decision from the Second Circuit. It was disappointing and I think completely wrong. We are now in the process of deciding whether we want to take this to the U.S. Supreme Court. And um, we're in the process of sorting that out. So to answer your question about who gets to see the evidence first, the public in the role of a grand juror, as if they were a grand juror or the real grand jurors, uh, I think it's going to be the public the way things are going because it may take us several months to get to the U.S. Supreme Court. And then even if they decide to take it, it'll be several more months to brief it 
and then they'll probably take time to decide it. So I'm pretty sure Richard is going to be efficient enough in the production of this film, and I'll be helping as best I can. Uh, that we're going to be getting this to the public sooner sooner than that. Well, it seems that the public has to pressure them. They have to be, you know, on the spotlight that, look, if you don't do anything, it's really obvious why you're not doing something, you know, that. But I also wonder, and this is kind of a legal question, would they, would they be able to say that, oh, the jurors, we can't nominate this juror or that one because now they're biased because of this film, because they already saw it? Well, they might be able to eliminate some jurors on that basis. Um, it probably would be an accomplishment on our part if we got the film so widely viewed that they couldn't find any grand jurors who hadn't seen it. Uh, that itself would be an accomplishment. But um, I don't think so. The grand jury is a little different than a, a jury in a civil or a criminal case where you know, someone's guilt or liability is being being determined. The grand jury is just looking at whether there's enough evidence to indict. It's a probable cause type of standard. Um, I doubt that the disqualification standards would even apply in that context as they would in, you know, a regular trial jury. So I, I don't anticipate that being a problem. Great, great. Well, I think what you're doing as a body of work is it's a testimony to those who lost their lives. We can't just forget them like that. We have to do something. And I think by creating this film, you're going to bring the public more, you know, you're going to raise their awareness and they're going to be angry. <laughs> they're going to demand justice and rightfully so. Rightfully so. It is a goal. And if you if you have time, uh, before I turn it over to Richard, I'll give you one more legal strategy we're considering. Um, Please, go ahead. So th this problem, we're, we've had a lot of the lawsuits where we've had standing issues and the case didn't get to the merits, including a suit against the FBI regarding the 2013 9-11 Review Commission, which was basically a sham. And we didn't get to the merits of that either because of standing. And there's actually a New York Times article a couple of years ago, which criticized the Supreme Court and some of the courts of appeals, I believe, for using this standing doctrine to keep public interest plaintiffs out of court. New York Times, uh, the author of that editorial actually used the phrase weaponizing the standing doctrine. And it's not just on 9-11. There are a lot of folks who are having that problem. So uh, short version, the new strategy we're considering to get around that problem, other than the FOIA cases, which have no standing problems at all, is a, an, a First Amendment lawsuit focused on government cover-up. And we can talk more about that later if you wish, but um, it'll take some resources, but we can actually bring a federal lawsuit for family members or first responders for money damages and for injunctive relief to basically cut through the cover-up, get the evidence being concealed, so the family members and first responders who've been harmed can actually make the case against the actual original wrongdoers who did the demolition. And we're now evaluating the potential for that type of case. I think that kind of case grabs the public when family members are involved. And we are at the break. I want to thank everyone from the 9-11 Lawyers Committee. We have Mick Harrison, Barbara Honiger, Richard Gage, and Charlotte Dennett. And uh, this segment of the show is called 9-11 Legal Victories and New Directions. And we will return after the break.
side of midnight this is kinthea standing in for richard c hoagland our guests tonight are mick harrison barbara honiger richard gage and charlotte dennett uh mick was there any last thought you wanted to wrap up before we bring richard on only that uh we're in a um an important phase of transition and uh an important time for the public to get involved. We really need the support from the public financially and otherwise. So we'd appreciate whatever they can do to weigh in with us as we uh, transition to what we've been describing, maybe this new cover-up lawsuit and this uh, crime scene to courtroom expose. Okay, I want to mention that on the page in the 9-11 section, I have a donation link for those who want to donate to the cause. Thank you. So Richard Gage, Richard, <laughs> our architect, our genius architect, what do you want to share with us tonight? We have a lot of evidence that could put a lot of perpetrators away forever for mass murder and treason. And there is no statute of limitations, apparently, on those crimes. This is the crime of the century. And I focus on the evidence as an architect of 30 years. I didn't even know we had a crime until 2006, March 29th, listening to the radio, David Ray Griffin giving an interview to Bonnie Faulkner in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I'm driving on my way back from a construction observation meeting, and he is talking about 118 first responders all seeing explosions, hearing explosions, being blown around by the bil- in the building, Some many of them by explosions, many of them seeing flashes of light. This is all orally, orally recorded by the fire commissioner. And we didn't know about this until 2005. Huh? Mm. Yeah. I'm saying this is incredible. What? What? I said the horror of it to be there to experience that. Yeah. It's, 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 they're all in shock. They're in PTSD. It is a bad situation. It's like being in war, but, what it tells us is that there were explosions and lots of them. Explosions before the towers came down. Like seconds, many seconds before, seven to ten seconds. And the videos reveal this too. 
the tripod-mounted cameras that the research also uh, of Graham McQueen, he's done incredible quantities of research for the 9-11 truth movement. He's documented very carefully that there's these tripod-mounted cameras that shake because after the first plane hit the towers, you know, everybody, all the news media are coming down there to put their cameras on the hole in the Twin Tower. And people are jumping out of the towers. It's, it's a horrible situation um, uh, due to the fires. And the tripod shakes, and then the tower comes down. This happens about three different occasions, uh, at least. And that Are these is, news cameras? Yeah, these, these are news, news cam cameras, uh, like really good cameras. And this corroborates is corroborated also by the seismic evidence with a seismograph uh, uh, measuring device at Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory 20 miles north of the World Trade Center. They're documenting explosions before the towers even collapse. NIST has some fancy explanations for how this might have happened, including rewriting history and moving the data back uh, 10 uh -huh. to 7 seconds. It's incredible. Uh, Andre Rousseau in 2012. Four collaborators in crime. Yeah. And Andre Rousseau documents, uh, he's an expert in uh, geological waves, uh, and he uh, is very clear. These, these are not due to the building collapsing. A, they're, they're, at, the wrong, a, they're at the wrong time. B, uh, the, well, that's the main point with regard to, to this data. So now you also have 40 local TV reporters downtown Manhattan uh, on the first day. And 36 of them are reporting this as an explosion-based event, not a collapse, not a, a problem with fire causing, for the first time ever, a fireproof steel frame structure to collapse, which is the claim of NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, who was tasked by Congress to explain these collapses to the American people. 36 out of 40 half of which are personal witnesses of explosions themselves. Uh, it's incredible. We have a six-minute video on our documentary. Well, this is in my, my webinar, which is on our website, which is richardgage911.org. And that's just the beginning of the explosive evidence here. We also have uh, the videos themselves, which document the early destruction in the first four seconds of the upper part of the towers above the point of jet plane impacts. It is destroying itself, but meaning it's telescoping down to the point of jet plane impacts. But what we're told by NIST and others like Zdenek Bazant of Chicago Northwestern University, who submitted a structural paper uh, a structural analysis. He's a mathematical wizard also. And he put this paper together and submitted it just two days after 9-11. And he's, all the rest of us are in shock, right? Uh, yeah, plenty of time us? for lots of research there, huh? <laughs> yeah, what, <laughs> yeah, this is, this is really fast work. I mean, this is an, a brilliant paper because while he used the correct formulas, uh, in this collapse analysis, his input data was finally decoded by uh, engineers Tony Zambodi, uh, Gregory Zudolinsky, and others. And they found that he multiplied the weight of the structure above the mass uh, by three times, four times. And he decreased the capability of the structure below to resist it by three times. So it's rigged 12 to 1 in favor of a collapse. They call it the crush down, crush up theory, where the top part drives the rest of the building down to the ground and then 
destroys itself. So this is uh, unbelievable. It completely violates Newton's third law of motion, which says there's an equal and opposite destructive force when two bodies collide, like, for instance, a Mack truck and a Volkswagen. Well, the upper part right. of the towers is the Volkswagen. And he's saying the Volkswagen drove the cold, hard, intact steel, which is getting heavier and heavier and heavier as you go down the towers. Uh, and the top part would have been destroyed before it destroyed even a few floors of the bottom part. It's incredible. It's mind-boggling to me that so many agencies are complicit in this. I mean, like those tentacles of the corrupt forces, they must be everywhere that they already had this lined up, this paper lined up to come out and say, oh, yada, yada, that's why it happened. Of course it was prepared beforehand. And then they have yeah. the courts, you know, turning a, sending away for nothing and, you know, avoiding producing evidence. How many of these agencies are, are in on this? This is not just one organization, one agency doing this. This is like huge. No, we're talking about a mass conspiracy, obviously, because the con Congress did nothing to investigate this. The 9-11 Commission uh, was a sham led by Philip Zelikow, who's a Bush insider, whose PhD is in the creation of public myth. Mm. You can't make this stuff up. It's incredible. And then you've got the media who uh, all across all the different uh, branches of media who are competing with each other theoretically to break the the stories that are big, right, and hold the government accountable. And yet they, through Project Mockingbird, which I'm sure your listeners are aware of, a, a CIA project to get their story uh, Im embedded, uh, their people embedded to carry the story forward from one agency to the other. And indeed, uh, we love the videos that are, show all the media saying mm -hmm. the very same thing all together in concert. It's I'll put that. I'll put that video on this show page. I have it. I'll add it yeah, to the yeah. show page. Oh, that is so good. 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 You can do that. So uh, I can't explain how that works at that level. What I can explain is that th after the upper part has destroyed itself in each of these towers. Then you have explosions, which are heard again by the first responders, and four and eight ton structural steel sections are ejected laterally out of the towers at 80 miles an hour, landing 600 feet in every direction. Now that's 90,000 tons of steel, excuse me, 100,000 tons, almost all of which is well outside the footprint of the building in the aftermath. So you have to ask yourself, what was crushing the building? If the steel is ejected outside of the footprint during the so-called collapse of this building, which is obviously instead high energy explosions, then how can it be available to crush the building? It can't. And so we say, well, gosh, maybe it's the concrete floors. There were 110 of them. They were four inches and eight inches thick. They were an acre <laughs> in size. That's another 90,000 tons <laughs> of concrete. Now, it's, surely it's that was available. It's amazing that they would expect anybody to believe that. Right. Well, it gets deeper. Surely that concrete, that weight, 90,000 tons in each building was available to crush the building. But guess what? We don't find any of it down at the bottom of either tower. I mean, we should have seen a pile 100 uh, pancakes high. We don't see 50. We don't see 10. We don't see one. What happened to the concrete floors? Well, all the videos and all the photos show the massive explosion of, of, of concrete powder uh, issuing from these explosions, drifting across lower Manhattan in a three square mile area in a blanket three inches thick from river to river. Hey, if the concrete is also 
well outside the footprint of these buildings, is it available to crush the building? No. All the photos and videos show this is pulverized in midair. It doesn't even get to the ground. That's two-thirds the weight of the building with the steel and the concrete minimum. It's not available to crush the building. There's a reality here that we have to stop and think about. And part of that reality includes what experts and agencies find in the World Trade Center dust, like the U.S. Geological Survey, for instance, who documented hundreds of dust samples. What do they find in all of them? Previously molten iron microspheres. Wait, let's unpack that. Previously molten, meaning they were 2,800 degrees, the melting point of iron. But the fires are only 500 or 1,400 degrees. NIST claims 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. But that's even a 1,000 degrees less than the melting point of steel or iron. Where are the molten iron? Iron? Wait a minute. Let's unpack that. We haven't used iron in our skyscrapers for over 100 years. Where's the iron coming from, everybody? Billions, four tons of molten iron microspheres in the dust. They don't even explain. They document them very well. R.J. Lee documents them independently also, corroborating this, this work. They're an environmental consulting firm. Well, wait a minute. And they're spherical too? How do they get spherical? Well, guess what? Thermite is an incendiary used by the military to cut through steel like a hot knife through butter. It is iron oxide and aluminum powder, which explains the iron because it creates molten iron at 4,000 degrees, explaining the partially evaporated beams found by FEMA and, and talked about by Dr. Jonathan Barnett. And it explains uh, the massive hot sulfur corrosion attack on the steel. That's a quote from the FEMA report, Appendix C, the metallurgical examination in which they looked at the steel and documented this incredible phenomena of silver dollar size holes in eutectic reactions. My God, what? This is mo among the most valuable forensic evidence they have because there's only out of total of 200,000 200, tons of structural steel, they only saved 256 pieces. And this, this couple of those pieces were used in this metallurgical examination. They documented all of this, uh, this uh, destruction, this attack on the steel, and yet uh, they, they uh, can't explain, you know, how it happened. They don't. And when NIST took over the investigation in 2002 upon FEMA's completion of the Building Performance Assessment Team report, they threw out this uh, Appendix C. Now, I don't know about Mick, but I call that part of a cover-up, as well as the destruction of the rest of the steel, 200,000 tons of it, uh, just two weeks after 9-11, taking it away on uh, to the landfill, put on barges, shipped to China and India for recycling. This is the illegal destruction of evidence in a crime scene. <laughs> but guess, guess what? They didn't have to to abide by the laws of the preservation and, and versus spoilation of evidence as required by the National Fire Protection Association. Why? Because it was declared an act of war, because the Pentagon was hit, invoking Article 5 of the NATO alliance, where uh, if one country is attacked, it is war. And then we take all the other countries in NATO into Afghanistan 
those who we could coerce to go and kill two million people in there and in Iraq. Um, and and that is uh, uh, an incredible uh, pr a solution to a problem that's been created. So they create the problem, 9-11, well-planned in advance with all the drills that Barbara can also uh, mention since she's done the great research on this subject uh, with the, sending our aircraft on the day of 9-11. There's 20 different drills, 40 altogether, many before that, uh, mimicking some of the same uh, attacks that are similar that we have. Uh, and in in diverting our air traffic controllers' attention uh, from what's really happening in the real world with hijackings, with these false blips on their radar, but back to the World Trade Center, where this uh, this world-changing set of events like dominoes began with the with the uh, destruction of these buildings. We also have found in the dust samples, seven independently collected samples sent to Niels Herod and his team of eight scientists in Copenhagen, and they're scientists from all over the world. They document uh, something very unique because they find these dual-layered red-gray chips in all the World Trade Center dust. And they get real curious because they're attracted by a magnet. Wait a minute. That means they have a high iron content. So they look like paint chips. They thought they were paint chips, but they zoom in or analyze it with X-ray energy dispersive spectroscopy and determine that it has a high iron content. Surprise, surprise. And aluminum, wow. the key ingredients of thermite, but mm -hmm. they're a thousand times smaller than the diameter of a human hair. That's nanoparticles of thermite. It's called nanothermite. It was developed by Lawrence Livermore Lab, uh -huh. Los Alamos Lab. We know what it is. They produced peer-reviewed papers on it. This is unbelievable uh, because here in the all the World Trade Center dust samples that they analyzed, that NIST could have analyzed. In fact, NIST said, oh, we found no evidence of explosives or explosive right <laughs> and later a year later they acknowledge in writing that they never looked for it you probably won't find what you're unwilling to look for right so others found it stephen jones did analysis at the ends of the beams he finds uh enter he finds uh, uh the the obvious residue of thermite there as well so you see the, the, here's the whole key to the whole thing. They take these chips in the lab, they put them in a heater, a differential scanning calorimeter, and they ignite at 758 degrees Fahrenheit. What do they produce, do you imagine, when they ignite molten iron microspheres with the same chemical signature as the molten iron microspheres found and documented by the U.S. Geological Survey and R.J. Lee through group uh, throughout all the World Trade Center dust samples they did. So you see, we know exactly where these molten iron microspheres came from. They came from these red-gray chips. So this is together a self-corroborating set of repeatable experimental data that could put these perpetrators away if we can get it into the court of a court of law which is why the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiries work is so incredibly important. Now, they're working, the Lawyers Committee, on a shoestring budget. We can't get all the cases that Mick has lined up for, uh, for the, the Lawyers Committee to, to, to work with and act on and get into the courts because we're we're operating on a very, very, very low budget. Most of us are volunteers. Uh, we, we don't expect Mick to, to, uh, to, to work for free and star. We've got to pay him. In fact, we need a dozen lawyers ultimately as we were admonished uh, earlier today by uh, 
the famous attorney, uh, Danny Sheehan, who, who was on our, our uh, symposium earlier this afternoon. He says, you've got to form an investigative body. So today and tomorrow, the Lawyers Committee is trying to raise the important $10,000 fund so we can get through the next two months, fund Mick and his team to submit these, these uh, legal cases where they need to be submitted uh, and, and taken. And then we're looking for people who can uh, write a check for uh, $1,000 today. 10 of those people, so we can raise the funds necessary. But after that, we're looking for people who really want to get serious with 9-11 Truth and who have hundreds of thousands of dollars to fund the only group in the country who can effective the, the tip of the spear of the 9-11 Truth movement, who has the capability to pierce the hull of the ship of denial, the, 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 a fully tasked uh, a committee of, of attorneys and investigators. This is such an important work. This is a global effort here. And a, a $10,000 tag is very small price to pay because it isn't just the 3,000 that lost their lives here. It's all our freedoms and how we've been set back. And it's in the other countries, the wars that were started, all those millions of people. This is, this is a global issue. And I, I can't believe that $10,000 or $20,000 or even $50,000 is a lot to raise for this. And by the way, I want to suggest that I've learned that a lot of uh, organizations are raising more money using crypto. And I do know of a, a site that will help organizations use crypto too, because the crypto uh, investors are more apt to give big amounts of money. So I want to put you? that out there. Yes, Barbara. Yeah, uh, we're almost to the top of the hour. It's 9.58 here in beautiful yes. 106 degree California where I live. And um, I want to remind everybody that Charlotte has been waiting patiently and she is on the East Coast. So it is very late there. So hopefully we can uh, hear from Charlotte. And I'd like to kind of uh, introduce her at, after the top of the hour, if I could. Okay. All right. All right. So, um, yeah, we're just about to go to break. Any last thoughts, Richard, before we go to break? Yes. Please visit the Lawyers Committee website and look for the donate button. It's right in your face. It's on the page, too. It's on this page. It's L. <clears throat> the website is LC4. FOR911.org. Uh, so that's really important. Now, I also want to mention that we have a full day of event tomorrow as well, hosted at RichardGage911.org, a live streamed film festival with speakers. And we're going to be bringing on, uh, we're, we're going to be honoring the work of David Ray Griffin. Uh, we call him the dean of the 9-11 truth movement. He's let us know that he only has a few months to live at most. So um, we're going to take the time at, at, while he's still with us to uh, honor his work, Elizabeth Woodworth, his right-hand person who developed the 9-11 consensus points, 20 best evidence points of 9-11 with a, a couple of dozen experts. She'll be walking through those points one by one. So if okay, you got enough, we, <laughs> we're <laughs> past the top of the hour, but we'll be right back after the break. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. 
Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>